Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, a study that has had us going deep into so many different topics of our Christian and Catholic faith. And out from the last program, I did receive a few more questions, both of which deal with the end times. Because it has come up again, I thought we would go ahead and go back into that a little more. Peter Williamson, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, does a a beautiful job with the question, so we'll get into that here in a bit. I first wanted to read the Catechism, paragraph 675, and the subheading here is the Church's Ultimate Trial. Now, if you listen to yesterday's program, this is going to sound uh, quite familiar because in many ways it echoes St. Augustine. So this is paragraph 675. Before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Now, as we we're reflecting this yesterday, we really asked the overarching question, are we living in the last days? And this is what Peter Williamson has to say, and I really thought he hit a home run here and very much adds to our reflections. This is Peter Williamson. Many passages in the New Testament indicate that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus began the final phase of human history. Now, this is what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, if you want to go there and reflect further. The question is whether we are living in the period immediately before Christ's return. Huh? This really is the eminent question. The fact that many Christians in the past have thought we were living near history's end rightly makes us cautious about jumping to conclusions. Nevertheless, it is a legitimate question since Christ urged us to be watchful and Scripture and tradition teach that certain events will precede his return. In his Olivet Discourse, Jesus declares that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. We read that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. By the way, the usage of the phrase Olivet Discourse speaks to Christ's end-of-time discourse that we read of in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, Peter Williamson continues. The Church's testimony to the nations is progressing toward that goal. Almost all nations, cultural linguistic groups, have heard the gospel, and the number of Christians in Africa and Asia is rapidly increasing. Although the recognition of the Messiah by all Israel has not occurred, since the late 20th century there has been a marked increase in the number of Jews who recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now, my dear friends... <laughs> The presence 
of negative signs in this response, in this question, should be duly noted. Uh, the millions who died in the wars and natural disasters of the 20th century call the warning events that accompany the seals and trumpets that we read of in Revelation chapters 6, 8, and 9. Some maybe societal trends bring to mind the final trial that we just read in the Catechism, paragraph 675. Now, has the abyss been opened and Satan released to deceive all nations? Certainly we look around us and what do we see? Beast-like totalitarian governments, sometimes overseeing vast empires, requiring absolute submission to leaders, to the state, to ideologies, to political parties. And what do these totalitarian regimes deny? Well, their freedom of religion, their freedom of conscience. Some of these regimes have launched fierce persecutions of Christians, with the end result, my friends, that the number of 20th century martyrs has exceeded all the martyrs of previous centuries combined. Combined. A staggering fact. While the persecution and murder of Christians in many parts of the world continues. Although as of this time, no beast figure comparable to the 20th century dictators is in sight, certainly political change can occur rapidly and unexpectedly. Meanwhile, we can also make the observations, as Peter Williamson does here, that an international, immoral, and materialistic culture resembling Babylon has certainly arisen and diffuses itself through the world via how but the marketplace, advertising, the entertainment industry, the mass media, and the elites that control public education. And let's be clear, my friends, there are a select few who do not have your concern in mind that are in control of just not public education, but these other venues that we speak of here. And these markets do what? But they seduce people to embrace its values and to abandon what but faith and obedience to God and His Word. So the consequent apostasy <laughs> that we read of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, of large numbers from Christianity in Europe and the Americas, certainly is historically unprecedented. So, the question, are we living in the last days? My dear friends, like the Christians who faced great trials in the past, it is simply impossible to know for certain whether we are living at the end or in a time of crisis that ultimately foreshadows it. As Peter Williamson reflects here, what is important is to heed what Revelation says about responding to the challenges we face. Is this not what we talked about yesterday evening? John's prophecy summons Christians to discern the spiritual forces at work in the world, to love God and to reject idols, to refuse to compromise with greed or lust, and to resist the adversary in the face of political, economic, or social pressures. This is what is before us today. We have to keep bearing witness to the gospel. We have to keep persevering in trial. We have to keep praying. We have to keep hoping. We have to keep rejoicing in the anticipation of Christ's glorious return. These are the realities that we must reflect with. Because if we do not, we might find ourselves losing faith with nowhere to turn. And we don't want that, right? No matter whether or not we are at the end the final battle. Our Lord's words 
aptly apply to us today as we wrap up this year, 2016. Those words that come to us from Luke chapter 21, verse 28. When these signs begin to happen, stand erect and raise your heads because your redemption is at hand. Your redemption is at hand. So, a necessary reflection as you continue to probe that all-important question, right? Are we in those last days? Now, I am not going to sell short that question because clearly if you are asking that question a lot, then, well, we need to reflect about what is behind that question a lot. And that is why we go back to it uh, time and time again, hopefully adding some nuances to previous reflections. And I think Peter Williamson does just that. Now, let us jump back into the book of Revelation. Uh, yesterday, we read chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, and what I want to do now is go back into those verses and reread, I think what I'll do here is verses 9 to 10, chapter 20, verses 9 to 10. And they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, I wanted to go back into these verses. I wanted to highlight uh, something that Michael Barber gets into here. And that is the importance of that phrase, the camp of the saints. Because here the church is described as what? But the camp of the saints, recalling the encampments of Israel in the wilderness on their journey to the what but promised land. This image underlines the church's pilgrim identity, as we are reminded that her dwelling on earth is only temporary, an encampment, if you will, on the way to the true promised land. The other term used to describe the saints is what but the beloved city. And this more or less anticipates the vision that we will talk about in chapter 21, where the church is described as the new Jerusalem, huh? the restored city. And how about those who oppose God's people face to face? Here we, we read that they are going to be consumed by fire. And this is an apt depiction of the actual burning of Jerusalem. Yesterday we talked about Gehenna, while we also must bring into the conversation the actual burning of Jerusalem, as we have been developing this uh, with Michael Barber over the course of four months. So just as the earthly enemies are defeated, so too is Satan, who is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. Furthermore, hell's torment is graphically depicted as a place of never-ending suffering, lasting day and night, forever. And again, this is where we talked about Gehenna, this actual place, this ravine that that acted as a kind of receptacle for all of the refuse of the city of Jerusalem, where all the dead bodies of animals and criminals went, all of the refuse of the city, all of the foulness of the city went, and they burned it perpetually. This is why Jesus Christ spoke of Gehenna so frequently. All right, how about verse 11? Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So now John goes on to describe the second resurrection and the second death, huh? At first glance, it might seem strange that, that John moves from 
narrating the events of 70 AD to speaking about the final judgment. However, as we have explored and as we have discussed, the destruction of Jerusalem points forward to that very event, does it not? Because of this, John moves subtly between the two events. Certainly the picture of Christ on the throne evokes Daniel, where God is enthroned as the Ancient of Days. Remember that all-important phrase that we discussed in our reflection into Daniel chapter 7, verse 9? Now, Christ's kingship is also described in terms reminiscent of what other great Davidic king? But King Solomon, who also sat enthroned on a white ivory throne. Go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 18. What do we read there? But Solomon sitting enthroned on a white ivory throne. So here again, Jesus, therefore, rules as the true son of David, bringing to fulfillment God's plan for the Davidic covenant. Recall the importance of Jesus' title, the son of David. We read on eight separate occasions in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus has many titles, many titles. But the one title that is most important to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is that he is what? The son of David. Why was that so important for Matthew? Because he was writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, which knew the Old Testament well. They would have been thinking about the great covenant made between God and David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and following. The covenant that Matthew himself evokes in the opening verse of the gospel. Have you not found that strange? You know, you open up the gospel of Matthew. Maybe you might anticipate reading of John the Baptist. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. But here Matthew is opening up his gospel with Jesus, the son of Abraham, and the son of David, because he understood well that his audience was well-versed in the significance of that Davidic covenant, which, oh, by the way, my friends, what did God say to David? From your line will come forth the Messiah. You will establish a dynasty that will last for a period of time, three, four, five hundred years? No, but forever, forever. So the kingdom of David was a prototype of the kingdom that God himself would establish here on earth. This is why Solomon is so important, because Solomon, as the son of David, is an even more specific prototype to Jesus, who was what? The son of David, as Matthew reminds us on eight separate occasions. This is why, my friends, one of the overarching themes to the gospel of Matthew is just not the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God, but that Jesus is the son of David. Huh? and of course, at the same time, the Son of God. So the Davidic covenant is widely important if we're going to grasp the significance of just not the New Testament, but certainly the book of Revelation. Now, what more can we say about this verse, verse 11? Well, the flight of the earth and the sky evokes Old Testament descriptions of the Lord's coming, does it not? Now, there are numerous prophecies about this. If you were to go into Judges chapter 5, verses 3 to 6, uh, Amos chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Amos opens up with this image. How about Micah, the same? The opening chapter, the opening verses, he uses this same imagery. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 to 16, the flight of the earth and the sky. It also bears similarities with Isaiah's prophecy 
of God's deliverance of his people in the new Exodus. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 6, what do we read there? Listen to this verse. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, will wear out like a garment. Wow. So once again, here we are <laughs> reading the book of Revelation in, in the New Testament, made to constantly go back to the old to see the beautiful symmetry that indeed is found when one is read in the light of the other. All right, how about these closing verses to chapter 20, verses 12 to 15? And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so... Here in these verses, John now sees the dead standing before the Lamb to be judged. You know, I was just talking about the title, the Son of David, as the most important title to Matthew. Well, what is the most important title to John, specifically in the book of Revelation? But he who is the Lamb of God. Was this also not an important title in his gospel? When he comes over the hill and John looks up, he says, behold, the king of kings. No, he says, behold, the lamb of God, the lamb of God, the Passover lamb who will be sacrificed for our sins. Hmm. Okay, to these verses again, verses 12 to 15, we should note that there is no distinction between the righteous and the wicked in these verses. Both will in some way be resurrected on the last day. If you were to go to the Catechism, paragraph 998, let us go ahead and, and go there. If you happen to have your Catechism out, paragraph 998, what do we read there? In the Catechism, in response to the question, how do the dead rise? They first ask the question, what is rising? In 997, the Catechism says this, in death, the separation of the soul from the body, the human body decays, and the soul goes to meet God while awaiting its reunion with its glorified body. God, in his almighty power, will definitively grant incorruptible life to our bodies by reuniting them with our souls through the power of our Lord's resurrection. And to paragraph 998, who will rise? All the dead will rise. Quoting John 5:29, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there again, in verses 12 to 15, we are reminded that uh, both will in some way be resurrected on uh, the last day. Therefore, right, just as the righteous will somehow experience the joys of heaven in their bodies, the torment of hell is felt in both soul and body. Now, the opening of the books is taken from Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, and also uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. In Daniel chapter 7, the books are opened with the coming of the Son of Man. Now later, what's interesting, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, 
God promises to deliver all those whose names are what? Found written in the book. John thus foresees the second coming as the time God's people will receive their second reward. Of course, those who are not written in the book of life will be cast with Satan and his minions into the fiery lake of hell, into Gehenna. Okay, there's a concluding reflection here from Michael Barber's work uh, coming soon, in which he responds to the question what the millennium might mean for us. And this is what he has to say here. Even though Y2K has now passed us by, there are still those who want to say that the new millennium signals an eminent return of Christ. So what does the new millennium mean for us? And I still think a very pertinent question today, huh? Michael Barber says, though it doesn't tell us when Christ will come back, the calendar is important nonetheless. This is an important point. The significance of the calendar, and maybe this isn't something that we have talked about enough, because ultimately, in an attempt to respond to whether or not we live in the last days, we maybe think, well, the calendar in the end doesn't matter. But in point of fact, it really does. Michael Barber makes the point that our modern calendar began in the 5th century when a monk known as Dionysius, or simply Dennis, did his best to determine the year Christ was born and started dating the years accordingly. While he was a little off, and ultimately that was inconsequential, the symbolism is what mattered here. But what was that symbolism? Well, it goes back to the emperor Diocletian, who insisted that he was God. This Caesar decided to fully emphasize his all-importance by introducing a new dating system, which started from the year he began to reign. He was saying, in effect, history didn't matter until I became emperor. Date everything starting from me. I am the new dawn. So by beginning his calendar with Christ's birthday, Dionysius made a bold and daring statement. Jesus is king. Caesar isn't. What St. Dionysius did, my friends, was nothing less than to launch a revolution, which has lasted even to our day. So whenever we celebrate the new year, and especially a millennium, we make a bold affirmation that the world recognizes Jesus as king above all others. And this gives us an incredible opportunity to share and celebrate our faith. We are about to go to many New Year's parties. These are not anti-Christian, unless they are celebrated in a sinful way, of course, but a celebration, and at the very least, a subtle way that Jesus Christ is at the center, right? I'll never forget the time when my uh, Western Civ professor strolled into class and he said, you know, I've got an announcement to make. We are no longer dating our calendars B.C. and A.D., but B.C.E. and C.E. B.C., of course, before Christ, and A.D. in the Latin Anno Domini, which means year of our Lord. B.C.E. was before Common Era, and C.E. was Common Era. So the public educational system made this broad effort to, in the name of tolerance, change our dating. But the problem is, my friends and not a problem for us, of course, but that Christ is still at the center. There's still something that intersects our timeline that is defining BCE and CE. And of course, that something is someone, the person of Jesus Christ, right? So 
as we reflect into uh, the importance of dates, the importance of numbers, there is some relevance. And the deeper we go into history, we not only appreciate this relevance, but we celebrate it. We celebrate it on New Year's Day. Now, of course, in the Christian and Catholic tradition, we have the liturgical season, which always starts during this season, the season of Advent and, and the first Sunday of Advent. But it is right that we also celebrate New Year's Day, and we do so with vigor and faith. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. Let us go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for another evening, another evening in which to reflect upon not only the richness of your word, but words that have meaning, words that have substance, words that change, words that transform because they are your word, the word of everlasting life. We are in gratitude for the gift of your word, the gift that instructs and guides. Amen. And we turn to our mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.